From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. Congress hasn't increased the current federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour in nearly a decade. Democrats in the House want to change that, but they're divided on how big the increase should be. In March, the Education and Labor Committee approved the most popular bill by its chairman, Bobby Scott of Virginia, which would boost the wage to $15 an hour by 2024. And former Vice President Joe Biden, the Democratic presidential frontrunner, touted it in announcing his campaign last month. It's well past time that the minimum wage nationally be a minimum of $15. It's well past time. It's time to start rewarding work over wealth. But a cadre of Democrats from mostly rural, mostly southern districts has proposed an alternative that would raise wages more slowly in the low-cost areas they represent. That, it seems, is holding up action. My guests today are David Cooper, a senior analyst at the Economic Policy Institute, a think tank that's close to the labor movement and supports getting to $15 as soon as possible, and Roll Call's Lindsay McPherson, who is covering the legislation in the House and had a big story last week looking at Democrats' struggle to get to a majority. Welcome to both of you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, David, um, why is it time for an increase in the minimum wage? Well, we're long overdue for an increase in the minimum wage. As, as you mentioned uh, at the start, we haven't changed the federal minimum wage in almost 10 years. Um, and at 725, the federal minimum wage today uh, is, is, is not realistically an, a wage that anyone can live on, even if they're working full time, really anywhere in the country. Um, at 725, the federal minimum wage today is worth uh, about almost 30% less than it was worth after you adjust for inflation at its high point in the 1960s. In 1968, the federal minimum wage was equal to a little over $10 an hour in today's dollars. Um, so we've let this critical labor standard erode over the last 50 years. And as a result, millions of workers throughout the country are earning much lower wages than they could have been making if we had made different policy choices at the federal level over the last five decades. So is $15 the right number in 2024 the right year to get there? I mean, you just said that an inflation adjustment would take it to a different number. Yeah. Well, I mean, 15 is the number that has political salience. We had the whole fight for 15, which motivated a lot of people. And $15 at some point in the early 2020s is, is a realistic amount for what it would take for most people to afford their basic needs and basically anywhere in the country. Now that you know, arguably, we could a lot of people could use fifteen dollars an hour today. Um, but the question is, could we realistically get to fifteen on a very short time frame without leading to some of these unintended consequences that people always worry about when you raise the minimum wage? Fifteen by twenty twenty four would be a gradual five year phase in, uh, which would give businesses time to adjust to that level. And it's it's a time frame that when the lawmakers were, were considering uh, when they could get to 15, they consulted with experts. They consulted with economists uh, who told them that, you know, 15 overnight is probably not realistic, but phasing it in over five years, that's, that's something that the economy could handle. So let's get the lay of the land. How many people are actually making the minimum wage right now and would be affected by, and how many people would be affected by an increase to $15? 
Sure. So that's that's a little bit of a complicated question because there's actually very few people that are making exactly the federal minimum wage of seven twenty five an hour. It's it's on the ballpark of about three million people. But of course, you have millions of other folks throughout the country who are making their state minimum wage, and we have state minimum wages that are higher than the federal minimum wage in twenty nine states throughout the country. Plus, about forty cities and counties have their own minimum wages higher than their state minimum wages. So you have a lot of people making minimum wages just higher than the federal minimum wage. But if you look at all the folks that would be impacted if you were to raise the federal minimum wage to $15, you're talking about everyone who's making somewhere between $7.25 and $15 today, uh, or who would be making $15 by 2024. Plus, you're also talking about some folks who are probably going to be making a little bit above $15 in 2024, who are likely to also get a raise as their employers adjust their overall pay scales. Um, When you look at that full body of people, you're talking about 40 million workers throughout the country, so a little more than a quarter of the entire U.S. workforce. Okay. Lindsay, let me turn to you. You wrote this very interesting story last week for Roll Call um, in which you said the Democrats were basically having trouble getting to 218 votes, a majority in the House, you know, not relying on any Republican votes. Um, That's uh, surprising given that the $15 minimum wage bill has something like 200 Co-sponsors? Right. 205 co-sponsors um, to Bobby Scott's bill. So you think only, they need, only need 13 more? Um, they need, by my calculation, 11 more. There were two that were not co-sponsors that voted for it in committee. Um, one of those members, Josh Harder, has confirmed to me that he will would support it on the floor. He's from California, right? Right. Um, Lauren Underwood from Illinois um, is not decided on how she'd vote on the floor, but it I mean, personally, it'd be hard to see her changing her vote from committee to the floor. Okay. I basically looked at the mm-hmm. people. Um, I looked at the two bills. Mm-hmm. That the alternative that you talked about is um, a regional minimum wage bill. And what I found I thought was interesting on that, there are only 13 sponsors on that, including the lead sponsor, Terry Sewell, that of the 12 co-sponsors, um, that half of those members, so six members, are also on Bobby Scott's bill. So it's not exactly a true alternative because some of those members actually support both measures. Um, I think that it's just more moderate members who understand the concerns of their rural colleagues um, who are inclined to and the, these support either. rural colleagues, you mentioned Terry Sewell, she represents Birmingham and a lot of rural areas uh, to the southwest of Birmingham and Alabama. She says this would hurt small businesses in her uh, district. And, and they, they've, this group feels that strongly, that it would be a negative for their districts? They do. I mean, they argue that, yeah, the uh, you know, it's different than in rural Alabama versus New York City. And your money goes, yeah, farther your money here. goes farther. And for the business, you know, they're probably making less profits because the purchasing power is smaller there. That's their argument. Right, right. You're listening to CQ on Congress. You can find this podcast at rollcall.com or your favorite podcast app. I'm talking with David Cooper of the Economic Policy Institute and Roll Call reporter Lindsay McPherson about the minimum wage. Okay, David, so you just heard uh, about that regional minimum wage Mm -hmm. bill from Lindsay. You guys have put out a paper critiquing that idea that, you know, somehow uh, the wage should be different in in rural Alabama versus Manhattan, but it makes a certain amount of intuitive sense. Sure. Yeah, so our argument is not that you can't have different minimum wages. It's that it's not the role of federal policy to establish that variation. So let me explain. You know, as I said earlier, um, currently there are 29 states and about 40 cities and counties that have set minimum wages higher than the federal minimum wage. 
So there already is tremendous variation in minimum wage levels to, a, to account for differences in cost of living. High-cost cities have typically set higher minimum wages to, to account for that. Federal policy has always been this backstop, this universal floor to raise wages in the states and cities and places where local lawmakers have been unwilling to raise their minimum wage. And that's exactly what's happened throughout the South and, and a handful of other states uh, in the mountain region and in the Midwest. If you essentially allow federal law to be adjusted by these regional differences, you're basically accepting decades of historical inequities uh, that have persisted because we haven't done enough to strengthen those federal standards, and local and state lawmakers haven't been raising minimum wages on their own. So um, it just doesn't make sense to, to basically bake in that structural, structural inequality into federal law. You should set a level of the federal minimum wage that would allow folks to, to afford a decent life anywhere in the country, and then states and cities can continue to set their levels above that. If so you see to. 15 as reasonable mm -hmm. nationwide as a floor, and then maybe Manhattan sets it at 20. Exactly. And, and I say that, you know, if you look at where the federal minimum wage has been in the past, as, as I said earlier, back in 1968, at its highest point ever, the federal minimum wage was equal to about $10.15 per hour in today's dollars. Well, since that time, we've had tremendous improvements in labor productivity. Workers generate more per hour uh, of work than they did back then. Productivity more than doubled over that time. So what that means is that if we had been raising the federal minimum wage at the same pace as productivity growth since the 1960s, we could have a federal minimum wage today of over $20 an hour. That doesn't mean we couldn't get we could get there right now, but it means that the economy for the nation has the capacity for much higher wages than where we're currently at. Um, and so, 15 by 2024, which again you've got to adjust for, you got to account for inflation. There is probably closer to about $13 an hour in today's dollars. That's a reasonable target for where we could raise the federal minimum wage uh, for the entire country, given this tremendous improvement in productivity over the last 50 years. Lindsay. I think some of the uh, proponents, and I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate yeah, for sure. them so you can answer this. Um, it, their concern is the time frame, especially if you're in a state that has not raised it from 725, um, say Texas, that yeah. where not only has the state not raised it, they've barred their municipalities from raising it beyond 725. Right. Um, and if they're going to get to it by 2025 versus a state that's already at a higher place and so for, so for them to get to 15 by 20 or 2024 over five years um it's not as much of a leap so sure. i think sewell's argument in some cases yes we'll and get sewell to 15. would raise it to 15 but right. not by 20 exactly that it's a different schedule depending where you're at depending on your cost of living yeah what's the problem mm -hmm. there well i mean it is a different schedule but there's actually nothing in the sewell bill that would say that those low-wage areas would ever actually get to 15. they would always just be per perpetually lower than the rest of the country assuming those differences in price remain. You know, the, the truth is th this argument that there's no way low-wage areas could adjust to higher minimum wages is in some ways a version of the argument that's always made. It, when, it, when a minimum wage increase is proposed, that businesses won't be able to adjust, they'll have to lay off workers, businesses will close, etc. We have had decades of research that have examined the impacts of minimum wages, and I think a fair uh, reading of that literature is that Economists have, you know, if there is some effect of raising the minimum wage on jobs, it's so small that economists really have a hard time measuring it. So, so David, you would acknowledge that there is a trade-off. I mean, Republicans will say people are going to lose jobs if we raise the minimum wage. Some people will be fired or, or won't ever be hired. 
You would acknowledge that trade-off, but you say it's worth the trade-off? No, not that people will not be hired. What the, what the research shows, and even the textbook models are saying, is that if you raise the minimum wage higher than sort of the market-determined wage, that there will be fewer total hours of work in that area uh, than there would have been in the absence of the minimum wage increase. But that doesn't mean that a bunch of folks are going to be priced out of a job. What it means is that some people who are low-wage workers who, who typically change jobs frequently uh, throughout the course of the year, most low-wage workers actually move in and out of at least two jobs in, in the course of a year. Those folks might spend a little more time in between jobs. Maybe they work fewer hours per week. But at the end of the year, all the research shows that annual incomes of low-wage workers do go up. So even if their employment status at any given time is, is impacted by the change in the minimum wage, the research seems to suggest that despite whatever those employment consequences are, low-wage workers as a whole are better off in terms of the, the income that they're taking home. And, and David, you made the point that $15 is kind of getting to a point where people can live on that wage, whereas seven twenty-five anywhere in the country, it would be difficult to make ends meet. Yeah. But there are some minimum wage workers who aren't relying on their wage to make ends meet, uh, for example, American youth, and uh, who are living at home, say, mm -hmm. and don't have to pay rent and don't have to pay for their food. Mm -hmm. And the youth labor force participation rate has been in a sort of concerning decline since the late 80s, when about two-thirds of American youth, 16 to 24 years old, uh, had jobs or wanted jobs during the summer. And that's down now, I think, to, according to the Bureau of Labor Stati Statistics, into the low to mid-50s. So will a higher minimum wage make it harder for American youth to get a summer job? Well, you know, I, I don't think that's, you know, the research has, a lot of the minimum wage research has looked specifically at effects on young people. So the sort of the seminal minimum wage paper is the uh, the Cardin-Kruger study that looked at what happened in New Jersey and Pennsylvania along the border when New Jersey raised its minimum wage and Pennsylvania didn't. And they looked specifically uh, at fast food restaurants because they thought, you know, this is the industry that employs the most low-wage workers, including a lot of teen workers. And this is the study that originally started changing economists' minds about the impact of higher minimum wages, because it showed that it didn't lead to any sort of detectable job loss. There have been other studies since then. There's a paper by Sylvia Allegretto out of Berkeley that looks specifically at effects on teens. Again, same conclusion, that higher minimum wages didn't see, seem to lead to a decline in teen employment. So, you know, I think that a lot of those potential effects are overblown. I would also say that if you look at the folks that would be impacted by increasing the federal minimum wage to $15, the vast majority are not teenagers. 90% of the population that would get a raise from an increase to $15 an hour are adults uh, age 19 and older. And, and more than two-thirds are age 25 and older. So this is a policy that's critically important for a huge, literally millions of workers, the vast majority of whom are not teens. And Lindsay, it's it's also critically important for Democrats, I think, to get this done. I mean, this has been something their their base has been pushing for years, the $15 minimum that they've promised to get done. Uh, is this r really a serious problem, these 11 votes? I mean, might there be some Republicans who, who come over and vote with them? Um, I doubt there'll be any Republicans. Republicans typically on issues like this, you know, want the states to be able to handle it. They're not really about setting federal minimum standards on things like this. So, um, and, and Democrats don't want to count on Republican votes. They never want to count on Republican votes. So I always want to have up there. I mean, what do you hear about how, uh, you know, they're twisting arms there to get these 11 votes? So, you know, the way what I looked at in my story is there are 22 members that were not on either the Scott bill or the Sewell bill. 
um, and also not counting Underwood and Harder who had voted for it in committee. So I, I look at those 22 as the ones they need to get. They need 11 of the 22. And Bobby Scott told me he had talked to some of those people behind the scenes who have told him they will vote for it. I reached out to all of them, and I've only had one give me a affirmative answer that, yes, that it, they'd be inclined. Right. So, the regional minimum wage folks are kind of laying low, though. They're holding their cards. Well, I don't think it's about them. I don't think they need those people. There's, like I said, there's six that aren't on the Scott bill. They're not mm-hmm. going to budge here. I think that these people are flexible, and I don't think they're, they're not supporting the Sewell bill either. I, maybe that's too drastic. But I think the problem here is that Bobby Scott and his allies are pretty much unwilling very bullish about changing the bill. They, they don't, won't. They won't make any. They compromise. do not want to change it. Fifteen dollars by twenty twenty four. That's it. Bust. Yeah. Well, he also. I think he communicated to me. He feels that people who are opposed to this, they don't. It's not really about the timeline for them. That they just oppose increasing the minimum wage. I don't know if that's fair, but um, that's what he feels based on the opponents he's talked to. But yeah, he. He. And it's not just him. Leadership, progressive allies. Everyone's pretty bullish, like, this is the proposal that works. So it is a it is a matter of arm twisting, and that's difficult. So the, of those 22 people I looked at that, that they can go after, 20 of them are in um, competitive races in 2020, or at least as rated by Inside Elections with Nathan Gonzalez right now in the field. So these aren't – there's political considerations as well. They're hearing it from their businesses back home, and it's not an easy decision to make. All right, Lindsay, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, David. Happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. And thanks, a special thanks to our producer, Tula Vlahu. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit rollcall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at rollcall.